to bow our hearts, to bow our knee and declare, Jesus Christ, you are my Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the release of your power, the power of that name in this house today as we acknowledge your presence. And we say to you, have your way. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone who can agree said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. At the end of the Apostle John's life, a man by the name of Jerome, and boys and girls, if you'd like to go to Kids Own Worship, I flipped the service around a bit today because I have that privilege. They can kill me later. Jerome, uh, one of the second generation of leaders after the apostles died. He wrote about his mentor, John, and he said at the end of his life, he could no longer walk. Or for that matter, he couldn't even sit upright. He would be brought into Christian assemblies on a stretcher by his friends. He would prop himself up on one elbow and whisper to the assembly, little children, love one another. Then he would lie back down. The next time they met, he would do exactly the same thing. And finally, someone objected and said, we've heard that. It's too simple. What faith teaching can you give us? I mean, you were there with him. You saw him. What other emphasis can you bring? And Jerome wrote, John's answer to those subjects was this. I say, love one another because it's the Lord's command. Love one another because it's the Lord's command. And then he said, and if this is all you do, it is enough. If this is all you do, it is enough. Remember what Jesus said the two greatest commandments were? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. We talked about that last week as we were in First uh, John chapter 2, and we looked at uh, verses 7 through 10, where he reminded them of the new old commandment to do that very thing, to love one another. It's because of our love for each other that we know that we love God. And it's because of our love for one another that the world knows that we love God and that Jesus Christ really lives. He said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, not your witness wear, and I'm not against witness wear, not because you have the sign of the fish on the back of your car, and I'm not against that, unless you drive crazy. <laughs> then take it off. It is by our love for one another. That's why John said over and over, love one another because it's the Lord's command. And if this is all you do, it's enough. I've shared with you before in series of the messages that we're all born with two inherent needs. You just come equipped with these needs. 
It's not really an option. God gave them to you when you were born. Number one is the needs for security. Security in this sense, that you are unconditionally loved by someone. Thank you, Mom. You're unconditionally loved by someone. The second need that we have is a need for significance. A need for significance, to belong to something bigger than ourselves, to be a contributor to something bigger than ourselves. If you pay attention, people from every social strata of life are trying desperately to meet those needs. Desperately. Over the past couple decades, maybe more, there have been several businesses competing for business and clients, and they like to tag on someplace in their mantra that we are family. Come and join our family. Be a part of our family. Um, 1979, Sister Sledge, you remember that group? Four girls who, their last name was all Sledge. And they usually did backup singing for other groups. That was their forte. But they did put out an album. And on that album, they had the song, and the guy's name just slipped my mind, but the song, We Are Family. We Are Family. It's a song that's been used in numerous movies. I mean, so many of them, I decided not to try to list them. It's Pepsi tried to use the tune when they rolled out Diet Pepsi. Uh, We Are Family. 1979, the Pittsburgh Pirates claimed that as their um, theme song for the whole season. And 1979, um, if you're a baseball fan from way back, you remember uh, Willie Stargell. He kind of led that team that year. Uh, and they made it to the World Series. And all during their season, in the Pittsburgh radio stations, that song was played all the time. And uh, they even put We Are Family on top of their dugout. They painted it. We are family. Because they looked at, they all came from so many different places, uh, different, we'll just leave it at that. They all came from different places in life, but here we are, we have this purpose. They fell behind three to one to the Baltimore Orioles in that World Series in 1979, but they grabbed on to that mantra, we are family, and we are family. They came from behind and won the World Series. They won the next three games. but we are family. We are family. Uh, I believe to a certain degree the needs for security and significance is what causes people to join a whole lot of cults in the world today. They're not really so concerned about what these people believe other than these people say, we care about you. You can be part of our family. You can be part of our family. Truth goes out the window. It's just you're part of our family. Um, and I could name some that would do that. Uh, and that's unfortunate. In our search for security and significance, we are duped. We're deceived. Why do kids get involved in the gang lifestyle? Some places they say it's for survival. But at the core of it, Somebody, the gang will tell you, you'll be our family. And then they tell you, if you leave our family, you're dead. But you'll be our family. And they use that family 
to, and you'll be somebody significant because we'll make you somebody important by committing crimes. But that's the issue is I have the security, somebody's got my back, and I have a purpose. We'll look out for you, you look out for us. Of course, it's a lie, but it speaks to that need that we have for security and significance. You say, where in the world are we going with this? Well, we're going to look at the next three verses in 1 John chapter 2. And John kind of, in his writing, if you have an NIV Bible or ESV Bible, um, they put these three verses in kind of poem form in the middle of your script. That's because he kind of, he stops for a few moments in his writing, and he's attacking the heresy of the, uh, the beginning of Gnosticism, where Christianity is all about what you know, it's not about what you do. And Jesus really wasn't the Son of God and all of those kind of things. But he stops in the middle of that and he said, and he gives to us, I'm writing these things to you because. And he puts this and in kind of this poem form and this is the heartbeat. This is why I'm talking to you. This is what I want you to know. And as we read these three verses, there's one word that appears over and over, which is the title of the message today. Because, because. So let's read verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. First thing I want you to notice is family language. It's family language. I write to you, little children or literally little born ones. Seven times in his letter, he refers to these people as my little children or my dear children. It's one of his favorite ways to uh, address these people at this point in his life. He addresses the fathers, he addresses the young men, he addresses the children, the youth. The visual picture that comes to my mind is a grandfatherly figure, much older than me, sitting down at his desk contemplating the generations of children that he has in the Lord who followed him. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. He looks at their lives and doing so well, and he wants to commend them, but he also wants to keep them going down the straight and narrow. Because remember, he's older than almost anyone. He's probably in his 90s at this point in his life. And that was a long, long life in that day. And this first line, my little children, is probably all-inclusive to include the whole church family believers. Now, I started a couple moments ago by taking a few moments to make the observation about businesses, cults, and gangs, saying that the reason you need to belong to them is because they're family, a place to belong why would cults, 
gangs and even business try to major on the family or family issues? I believe it is because Satan is trying to create a counterfeit of what God desires to provide for us through Jesus Christ. Satan will provide a counterfeit for every good gift that comes down from above. Scripture teaches us that when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, faith in who he is and what he's done, number one, we become part of his family. We become part of his family. John chapter 1. Verse 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. Verse 13 said, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17 says this, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Children of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. In case you haven't gotten it yet, Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says this. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, did you get that? The full rights of sons. You're not a second class son. The full rights of sons, of children, of God. And ladies, that word here is really not supposed to be gender specific. It includes all of you, so we're all children of God, okay? Just in case you go away saying I'm a chauvinist pig. That's <laughs> not the case. You're all included. God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Verse 7 says, so you're no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love of the Father has lavished on us. I love that word. He lavished his love on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. Now, for those of you who are counting on five songs before I got to the sermon, I wanted to include our worship as part of 
the sermon today because I want you to understand that when we sing songs at the beginning, we're not just filling in time. It's all part of the worship experience. And today is kind of an interactive message. And we're going to interact right at this moment by declaring who we are. If you want to stand and sing. Who am I that the highest king would While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. Whom the sun sets free, always free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I Everybody's a child of God. Say amen. amen. I'm a child of God. I hope. I hope that you live every day from that context. I am a child of God. I am who you say I am. Who God says I am. Not who people say I am, but who God says I am because my faith is in Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God. And number two, we are in the process of spiritual growth. We are in the process of spiritual growth. John speaks of three different groups of people in this poem that we just read. Children, young men, fathers or parents. Now in some places in Scripture, when gender is mentioned, gender is meant. 
But many times when we're reading in the context of the scripture and it talks about sons, fathers, it's talking about the whole family of God, men, women, all included. It's not a gender specific, but because the translator, because of our English language, it ends up looking to be gender specific. What he's talking about, I believe, in these three groups of people, now some people think that he was talking about the children, the youth, and the rest of us. We need to pray that God gives us more children. I didn't say to give you personally more children. I said the church. <laughs> I saw some of you say, I'm not going to pray that because you don't want to be Sarah. But the church needs kids. The church needs youth. Amen. Be praying. Be praying. And then I remember the scripture, go out in the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. Rope them, whatever, compel them to come in. We started, but spiritually speaking, we start out as babes in Christ. And as life goes on, we mature, we become young warriors. And as we go through the struggles of life, we become mature. We become spiritually stable in that, that process. And there's a couple of things you need to understand about this process. Number Letter A, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. Spiritual growth, just like physical growth, takes time. The Lord develops us spiritually through our trials and tribulations. One person did what the scripture said, praise the Lord. That's what the scripture says, rejoice when these fiery trials come your way because God is using them to work something in you to build hope, to build peace, to build your character, to cause you to become more mature. It's a life experiences that grows us up in our faith. Spiritual growth is a whole lot like growing fruits and vegetables. Now, I enjoy eating tomatoes. Tomatoes are good. And, uh, I mean, I loved tomatoes from the time I was a kid. Um, and every time I talk about tomatoes, I, I remember being in the cafeteria at Washington grade school when I was in grade school and, and uh, I'd taken lunch. Mom made me lunch. And one of the things I asked for lunch that day was we had this beautiful tomato and I took that tomato whole and I bit into it at the table and, and somebody in the fourth or fifth grade or fifth, sixth grade above me, anyway, he saw me eating this like an apple, and he began to make fun of me. And the next thing I know, the whole cafeteria is making fun of me for eating a tomato like an apple. I think it was the last time I took lunch to school. But, um, but, um, but I love the tomatoes. Now, when I go to the store to buy tomatoes, they tell you you have several you know, varieties to pick from. And then there's this deception thing. They say, these are hothouse tomatoes, and these are ripened on the vine tomatoes. That's because they left the vine on them. <laughs> there is not a ripened on the vine tomato in the local grocery store. They've been zapped with CO2 and to make them look red and whatever. And how do I know they aren't? Because I've had tomatoes off the vine. You don't pick them before their time. 
The thing about them, you can pick them, they're green, and they'll turn ripe in your... But it's not the same as the ones that you've taken off the vine that has been matured in the sun. The one that the deer did not eat. (laughs) We plant no more tomatoes. They like the plants, tomatoes and all. But spiritual growth is a process. You can't get in the hothouse and suddenly be spiritually mature. God takes you through all kinds of circumstances, good, bad, and ugly, to cause you to have fruit that comes forth, the fruit of peace, love, joy, patience, and goodness. It's a process. Which brings me to subpoint letter B. We should always be progressing. We should always be growing. You cannot remain static. You can only tread water for so long. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he said, you know what? I want to give you something solid to eat, but spiritually you're still drinking milk. You've not grown beyond the infant stage. The writer of Hebrews in the 5th chapter echoes the same kind of thing. He said, by this time you should be teaching others, mentoring them in the faith, but it seems you still need milk instead of solid food. Hebrews 5.14 says it this way, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice. The Lord allows us to go through situations to learn to hear His voice, to know His voice, and to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Verse 12 of 1 John 2 said this, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. On account of His name. Brings me to the third point. Number three, we are forgiven. I write to you because we are forgiven. John keeps coming back to this theme. As I told you before, he writes in a circular uh, fashion. He keeps coming back to this fact that we are forgiven. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is not a person in the room today, nor one watching via the internet, who has not broken God's laws. There are no perfect people. Jesus was the only one. There's no one who can say, I've not sinned. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the first thing we come to understand in our faith in Jesus is he died for those sins. He paid for those sins. We talked about he's the propitiation for those sins two or three weeks ago. Which means this, it has nothing to do with what I can do. My forgiveness has nothing to do with what I can do. Now, there have been false teachers over the centuries. The Catholic Church came to a point where they taught that in order for your sins to be forgiven, you must do penance. And they gave you some rules of penance, things that proved that you were really repentant. problem with that is then I'm saved by my works. It has nothing to do. My sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name and what he has done. 
My sins are forgiven on the account of Jesus' name and what he has done. He took my sins, nailed them to the cross, covered them with his blood. When he showed up before the judgment seat, when he went into the pits of death, there was no sin on his record. So he said, I want you to take all of their guilt, put it on my record. I died for that. I paid the price. We are saved totally by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Forgiven. A new creation, the scripture says. All things are passed away. All things become new. Some of my favorite verses on forgiveness come from David's song in Psalms 103. For example, verse 8 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Aren't you glad he did not treat you with a knee-jerk reaction to your sin? Slow to anger. Merciful and gracious. Verse 10 goes on to say, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does it remove our transgressions from us. As far as these... You know, I love the fact that when God forgives, He chooses to forget. Now, God doesn't have Alzheimer's, dementia. He just makes a choice. That sin was paid for, and I'm going to wipe it off the account and off my memory. Isaiah 43, 25 said this, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. I will not remember your sins. First John 1, 9 said, If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the stories that I've told numerous times over the past, whatever, 30 years, comes from one of Max Lucado's early books. It's a story of Johnny and Sally who went to Grandpa and Grandma's for the summer. Grandpa made Johnny a handmade slingshot. Johnny took that slingshot all over the farm, loaded it with rocks, shooting at everything that wasn't moving. He hit nothing. He had not perfected how to zero in on target. The call came, come in, Johnny, it's time for dinner. And on his way across the yard, Grandma's pet duck happened to be walking by. He'd never hit anything, so when he pulled back the rock and let it go, much to his amazement, it hit the duck on the side of the head and it fell over dead. He looked around to see who was watching. He saw no one, so he grabbed the duck and he hid it in the woodpile. Came into the house, washed his hands, did everything, sat down at the dinner table, 
sweating bullets for the next few minutes, but nobody said anything. He thinks he's home free when grandma says, um, Sally, would you help clear the table and do the dishes tonight? And Sally said, you know what, grandma? Johnny told me he'd like to do the dishes tonight. And then she goes to Johnny, I saw the duck. What else can he do? He has to do the dishes. He's been found out, but not by grandma. As the way Max told the story for the next several days or weeks, every time there was a task that was given to Sally that she did not want, she said, I think Johnny wants to do that. Remember the duck. Finally got to the point that the load was more than Johnny could bear, the guilt and condemnation, and he's, Grandma, I've got to confess to you. I was shooting my slingshot, and I hit your duck, and I'm sorry, I killed it. Grandma said, you know what? I forgave you. I've forgiven you. I was watching out the window, and I saw you do it, and I forgave you when you did it. I was wondering how long you would let Sally hold that duck over your head. <laughs> Some of you allow the accuser to hold the dead duck of your past actions over your head and to tell you you're not worthy. You're not worthy. God can't use you. You need to tell him he's a liar, has been a liar, and always been a liar. Because Jesus said, I forgive you. And your sins are washed away. And I will remember them no more. No more. Walk in the freedom of forgiveness. Walk in the freedom. For Jesus died for them. Which means this. We're forgiven. Since we are forgiven, we can... We must forgive one another. We can and we must forgive one another. You say, Pastor, you're being pretty harsh to tell us we have to forgive. I didn't tell you that. Jesus did. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, right after the Lord's Prayer, right after that, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, that's only one passage. You need two. Well, go read Matthew 18 later today. There are two. There's more than two. We must forgive. And I can forgive not because the person deserves it, I forgive because God forgave me in Jesus Christ. Not because I deserved it, but because I needed mercy. I needed grace. We must forgive one another. Back to verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. For His name's sake. You ought to do a study sometime in the Bible where God talks about for His name's sake for His name's sake, the things that God does for the sake of His name. We've been forgiven on the account of His name. When I was born, way back when, the birth certificate says that I was given the name Robert Gordon Giles. 
Now I know where Robert came from because that was my dad's name. I'm not sure why they chose Gordon. I do know why they did not name me the same as my dad, Robert Carroll Giles, because my mom did not want me to be a junior, even though everybody called me junior for the last 50 years. But um, because one of her siblings was a junior, and instead of calling him junior, they started calling him Junie. And she didn't want that to happen to me, and I thank her for that. And I was never called that. And uh, since I'm not a junior, you can't call me that. Um, we all have stories as to where our names come from. A lot of them have links to your family, your grandpa, your great-grandma, whatever. Uh, or it just sounded good with your last name, whatever. Uh, but when Jesus was given a name... It was very specific to who he was. Jesus' name extols his character, his integrity, his reputation, his holiness, and his glory. It reveals who and what he is. Remember what the angel said to Joseph in that dream, Matthew 1, 21? She will bear a son, that's Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior. For he will save his people from their sins. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when they were all together there and praying and the Holy Spirit was uh, poured out on them and, and they began to worship God in languages that they had never learned and their prayer meetings spilled into the street and there were travelers, Jewish travelers from all across the empire who'd been raised in other cultures, and they heard the languages that they spoke in other nations, and people praising God. And they say, what happened to these people? How do we receive what these people have? And Peter said to them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. Repent in the name of Jesus Christ. A few days later, Peter and John are walking up to the temple for the afternoon hour prayer at 3 o'clock. And when they come to the gate, there's a crippled man who's been crippled all of his life who's begging, and he says whatever beggars said in those days, alms, alms, or whatever. And uh, Peter says, look on us. Obviously, the beggar had been asking everybody who goes in, but he really didn't make eye contact. But he said, look on us. And the scripture says he was expecting to receive money. And Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus. And he walked. And then he leaped, then he jumped, then he shouted out praises in the temple courts because a man who had never walked was now leaping and praising the Lord. And it caused the priest and the Pharisees who happened to be there that day great consternation that there is this Pentecostal thing going on inside of their house. So they arrest Peter and John for preaching in the name of Jesus. 
They keep them overnight in jail. They bring him before the Sanhedrin the next day. And when they bring him before the court, they say, by what power and name did you do this? And Peter boldly says, in, by the name of Jesus Christ, the one you crucified. And then he goes on to say in verse 12 of Acts 4, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. We have did this in the name of Christ. Acts chapter 16, you read Paul and, and Silas are in Philippi and a lady's traveling, young woman's traveling them behind them and saying, listen to these men, they're sent from God. And, and Paul perceives that she has an evil spirit, a demonic spirit. And he turns around and said, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And she was delivered in the name of Jesus. Why did they cast around the name of Jesus in such a manner? It's because Jesus told them to. On the night before he's crucified in John 14, 15, and 16, we read these words, John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do that, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now to ask in his name means I'm going to ask what Jesus would ask. It means he's given to me a purchase order to obtain what he wants for me to have for the kingdom. You ever work with purchase orders? When I worked for the Longview School District, they gave me a purchase order to go buy a particular thing. I did not have the freedom to buy anything else but what that purchase order was written out for. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. It's not just a tack on the end of a prayer like we do all the time. It's to pray the will of God. Whatever you ask according to my will, according to my name, the power of my name, I will do it. Verse 16 in chapter 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 16, 26. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I, and do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. In that day, you will ask in my name. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every mind. Because I know there is peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. I just want to speak the name of Jesus Till every dark addiction starts to break Declaring there is hope and there is freedom I speak Jesus Your name is power Your name is healing Your name is 
break every stronghold, shine through the shadows, burn like a fire. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over fear and all anxiety. To every soul held captive by depression, I speak Jesus' love. Your name is power, your name is healing, your name is life. Break every stronghold, shine through the shadows, burn this morning as we continue to sing this song a few times you have a need in your life whether it be for peace whether it be for deliverance whether it be for healing whether it be to set free from fear and anxiety I invite you to come toward the front and Pastor George will meet you and lay hands upon you and pray the prayer in the name of Jesus, as we sing this first verse again, and, and just for the next few moments, I want to encourage everybody just to worship, declare the name of Jesus over situations in your life. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. Cause I know there is peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. I just want to speak the name of Jesus. Till every dark addiction starts to break. Declaring there is hope and there is freedom. I speak Jesus. Your name is power. Your name is healing. Your name is life. Break every stronghold. Shine through the shadows. Burn like a fire. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over fear and all anxiety to every soul held captive by depression I speak Jesus your name is power your name is healing your name is life break every stronghold shine through the shadow burn like a fire cause your name is power your name is power your name is healing your name is life break every stronghold shine through the shadow burn like a fire shout jesus from the mountain jesus in the street 
Jesus in the darkness over every enemy. Jesus for my family, I speak that holy name. Jesus, shout Jesus from the mountain. Jesus in the street. Jesus in the darkness over every enemy. Jesus for my family, I speak that holy name, Jesus. Shout Jesus from the mountain, Jesus in the street, Jesus in the darkness over every enemy. Jesus for my family, I speak that holy name, Jesus. Your name is power, your name is healing, your name is life. Break every stronghold, shine through the shadow, burn like a fire. Your name is power, your name is healing, your name is life. Break every stronghold, shine through the shadow, burn like a fire. Sing that again. Your name is power, your name is healing, your name is life. Break every stronghold, shine through the shadow, burn like a fire. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. Because I know there is peace within your presence. I speak to Jesus. Father, as we are gathered here, individuals have come believing in the power of your name. We pray for Carol today in the hospital room. What is the procedures are being done in response to that heart attack? We thank you for a miracle of healing taking place in her body. Lord, as Lonnie Fuqua is in the, another hospital and grave situation with a blood clot in his leg, God, I thank you for your supernatural intervention. Lord, as his mother goes to see what's going on, be with her and your power being released. And as Ron is at home today, we pray for continued health being issued into his body. She recovers from that stroke. Lord, as individuals across the room call the names of their loved ones before you in this moment, we speak the name of Jesus. We speak the name of Jesus. I remember the centurion who came and said, Jesus, would you heal my servant? He said, sure, I'll come to your house. And he said, no, 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 just send your word. Send your word. Lord, we send your word today. We send your word today. We speak the name of Jesus. We understand that you're the healer. By your stripes we were healed. And Lord, we understand that you are Savior. And you don't want anyone to, to perish. And so, Lord, we speak your name over our family members who need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
We speak your name over those who have been bound by fear and anxiety. God, that the peace of God, that passes all understanding would be their portion. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated if you're not already. When you don't know what to pray, you know what to pray? Just say, Jesus. Jesus. Because Romans 8 tells me the Holy Spirit can take those utterings that I cannot even, you know, groanings I cannot utter and, and decipher them and pray on my behalf. Jesus, the power of Jesus' name. We've been forgiven because of the power of Jesus' name. Verse 13, I write to you, dear children, because you've known the Father. Number four, we are significant. We are significant. We come to understand that we belong to the family of God, that God is our Father. I have an identity of significance. Father God is my Father. I'm part of the family of God. No matter how dysfunctional my life was, how chaotic my life was before I came to Christ, now I belong to Him and He belongs to me. The fatherhood of God becomes our source of security and our source of significance. We are tempted to find our significance in our occupation. Wherever you occupy, wherever your occupation is, you are there as a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God, a minister of the grace of God. That might be how he uses to give you money in your pocket to put food in your belly. But you're there because you're his child. My significance is found in him. I am forgiven and we are accepted by God. We are accepted by God. I love what Paul writes in Ephesians. We have been accepted in the beloved. We are accepted by God. My sense of security, my significance that I long come, comes out of my relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father. John is saying, my children, my children in the Lord, I'm so glad you understand that God is your Father, that you're a royalty, that you're princes and princess in the eternal kingdom of God alongside of Jesus Christ. I want to focus what John has to say to more mature believers, the one he calls the fathers, the elders. He speaks to them twice in this poem, and he says the same thing twice. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. From our first message in John chapter 1, we understand the one from the beginning is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He wants them against the heresy that is being taught to remember, we believe, we are convicted very deeply that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, God in the flesh, and he died for us. Don't leave what we learned in the beginning, he said. We know if, uh, and as we go on here, he said, maturity is a relationship with Jesus Christ in all of his infinite and amazing beauty. Maturity is a relationship with Jesus Christ in all of his infinite and amazing beauty. 
We have a relationship with Jesus, a relationship that is deep, fulfilling, and challenging, and new every morning. It's new every morning. It's satisfying enough that we become freer and freer. I don't know if that's a proper word. My spell check didn't throw it out. Freer and freer to think of him and not of ourselves. We are become freer and freer to think of him and not ourselves. It's not just the fatherhood of God that we appreciate, nor the freedom from sin that comes from Jesus' sacrifice. More and more we are captivated by the Lord's personality, his heart, his creativity, by the beauty and joy that make up who he is. It's characteristic of youth to be very conscious of self and how we relate to God. My sins are forgiven. My Father gives me identity. I'm becoming strong and know the Word. That's okay. That's where it all starts. But we need to grow up. We grow up. Now when you're young, your focus... You remember adolescence? Where was your focus? All on you. All on me. What happens when a teenager walks by a mirror? They make sure that they're presenting whatever it is they want to present, and I'm not sure what that is these days. But they're all consumed about, they're consumed what? When you're a teenager, if you see three people across the room whispering, you think you're talking about you. Mature people don't do that, right? The more mature I become in my faith with Jesus Christ, the less I'm concerned about me and the more I'm consumed about him. Remember when they came to John the Baptist, his disciples, and said, John, our crowd is diminishing. You know where they're all going? They're going down to the Jesus meeting. And his disciples are baptizing more people than you are. This is not right. And John said, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's what happens when we become mature in our faith. He must increase. And I must decrease. And I'm not saying we don't stand up and fight the enemy. We don't marvel at his forgiveness and his goodness. But we just become less concerned about us and more concerned about him. We come to that place where we've gone from just knowing about him to really knowing him. We've gone from just knowing about him to really knowing him. And there's a big difference. We grow up in grace. We don't invest so much self-focus in doing battle or recognizing God's fatherhood. Let me see if I can illustrate this from a life experience. Remember learning to drive? Back in, they still had driver's ed in in the high school when I was a kid. And uh, we got in the car with Mr. and three of us, my friend Van Cummings and Leela Rose. Leela had never driven at all. My dad had let me drive for quite a while with my permit, so I'd gotten past those 
You know, when you first get in the car and you've got a parent sitting next to you and you're in their car, you're very self-conscious about what's going on. Leela Rose, the first, first corner, he said, take a left. She pulled to the left and she kept turning to the left until we ran over the curb with the front tires and he's, and he's grabbing for the wheel. The day we went to the freeway, she's doing the on-ramp about 20. And she got it. We switched drivers at Kalama, at the overpass. By the, and she comes on, and there's this log truck coming. And we're doing 20. Mr. Lelanen about Carl Duff. I mean, flip on the gas. Get out of that worry, you know. But she was so self-conscious. But you know what? After you've driven for a little while, you don't think about all of those things. You're comfortable with your car. You're comfortable with speed. You're even comfortable with cars going by you because life experience. And as you grow in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become less self-conscious and more aware of His presence. Today I see far more of the road than I saw when I first started driving because I'm comfortable with the vehicle. I watch the mirrors all the time. I don't want anybody to hit me. (laughs) Same thing is true in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope that makes some kind of sense to you. David caught the essence of what John is trying to say about mature believers. Psalms 27, verse 4. One thing I've asked the Lord, that will I seek after. One thing, one thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. The passion of his heart was to be in the presence of God, to know God, to be there. All of his attention on Him. To gaze on the beauty gives me emotional satisfaction that goes with it. To meditate on or to seek to know his thoughts gives me the intellectual satisfaction that goes along with that. In the spiritual maturity, the mind and the heart of the Lord become completely satisfying. You say, really? Jesus said, if you drink of the water that I will give you, you'll never thirst again. He who hungers and thirsts after righteousness shall be filled. The third group was the young men. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Who's the evil one? It's Satan, Lucifer, the devil. The one that Jesus said is a murderer from the beginning and is a liar. He's a thief. He comes to kill and destroy. But John says, under the anointing of the Spirit to these young people in the kingdom, we are overcomers. We are overcomers. You've overcome the evil one. We are the winners. He said, I see you growing up and you're becoming more Christ-like in your attitudes and your actions. Death and deception are the trademarks of the evil one. But your lives are testimony to the fact that you're taking a stand against him. Death and lies do not rule your lives. You are overcoming the evil one. Verse 14, he says this, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you. And you overcome the evil one. You are strong. Do you know that today? 
You are strong. Paul learned it is in my weakness that his strength is made perfect. When he writes, you are strong, I suppose you can look at that from a couple different points of view. One of the things that young people pride themselves in is their strength and their stamina. When you're young, you think you're invisible. Justice thinks he always has to pick up anything I'm trying to carry because he thinks he's strong. Every once in a while, he discovers I can pick up just as much or more than he can. Perhaps he's writing from that perspective, but I prefer to look at it from another point of view. Many times in our spiritual youth, our spiritual adolescence, we have a tendency to waffle when the pressure comes. We're like the Apostle Peter on the night Jesus was crucified. And they said, you're one of them. And an hour before, he'd said, I'll never deny you, Jesus. But before the rooster crowed in the morning, he denied Jesus three times because he was not mature in his faith. And he thought he was strong in his own power and his own ability. When we're young in our faith, sometimes things come against us and we feel like I'm never going to make this. Sometimes we trip over the same besetting sin and we begin to think, I'm never going to get this right. I just keep getting tripped up. But John wants to encourage you. You can make it. You can make it. Because you are strong. And again, not because of your own strength, but because of the strength of the one who lives in you and the word that lives in you. You remember Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, I know what it is to be content. I know what it is to have nothing. I know what it is to have clothes and not have clothes, to have food, not have clothes, or not have food, to be in prison and not be in prison. But he said this, I have discovered I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if you look at the, the verbiage, strengthens me continually. He strengthens me continually. Because you're in relationship with Jesus, He lives in your heart, you have at your disposal all the power of Jesus Christ. Think about that all day long. The power of Jesus Christ. I have the power to overcome the evil one. Know this, the Word of God lives in you. He said that. The word, you are strong. Why? Because the word of God lives in you. I cannot overemphasize the importance of reading, knowing, and doing the word. Our number one weapon to overcome evil is the word of God. Our number one weapon, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness during that 40-day fast, how did Jesus overcome temptation? It is written. Even when Satan came with a, it is written, Jesus knew that it is written to trump that is, it is written. He knew the word. David put it this way, or the psalmist in Psalms 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. 
that I might not sin against you. When you know the word and it comes to a crossroads of decisions, the word comes out to help you make the right decision. Psalms 1, 2, and 3. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now you can get books to tell you how to succeed in life. But the word tells you how to succeed. Live the word. Do the word. And God will cause everything you do to prosper. Because you're doing what he said to do. Our minds are renewed. They're transformed by the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. The word of God is living, sharper than any double-edged sword that penetrates even to divide your soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There's something about reading the scripture that the spirit of God sometimes just causes it to become literally off the page. Slap you in the face. Been there, done that? Or it'll come off the page and it'll just overwhelm you with this sense of peace and comfort because it's living. It's living. It's active. And it will transform your life as you allow it to come in and change your way you think. It's God's Word. To you personally, it's his communication. It's how we know he's involved in our life is by the living word. Isaiah 55, 9 says this. For the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Thank you, Jesus. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountain and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. It shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. If you can, I invite you to stand as we sing the last song before we go into prayer. You are ever... Oh, you are always fighting for us, heaven's angels all around. My delight is found in knowing that you wear the victor's crown. You're my help and my defender. You're my savior and my friend. By your grace I live and breathe to worship you. At the mention of your greatness, in your name I will bow down. In your presence, fear is silent, for you wear the victor's crown. Let your glory fill this temple, 
Let your power overflow. By your grace I live and breathe to worship you. Hallelujah. You have overcome. You have overcome. Sing hallelujah. Jesus, you have overcome the world. You are ever interceding as the lost become the found. You can never be defeated, for you wear the victor's crown. You are Jesus the Messiah, you're the hope of all the world. By your grace I live and breathe to worship you. Hallelujah! You have overcome, you have overcome. Sing hallelujah. Jesus, you have overcome the Every high thing must come down, every stronghold must be broken. You wear the victor's crown, you overcome, you overcome. Every high thing must come down, every stronghold must be broken. You wear the victor's crown, you overcome, you overcome. Every high thing must come down, every stronghold must be broken. You wear the victor's crown. You've overcome, you've overcome. At the cross, the work was finished. You were buried in the ground. But the grave could not contain you, for you wear the victor's crown. Hallelujah, you have overcome, you have overcome, hallelujah, Jesus, you have overcome, oh, oh. As they continue to play that chorus, hallelujah you've overcome what I felt very impressed earlier this morning to end as we ended with this song is that all of us have people in our circle of influence whether it be family or friends who are held by a stronghold of the enemy whether it be a hurt that causes unforgiveness whether it be a habit that causes an addiction whether it be some lie of false teaching and false doctrine, the enemy has them in a place where they are walking in darkness, not in the light. Now I want to pray for those strongholds to be broken. We're going to speak the name of Jesus.
So Lord, as we come to the conclusion of this hour together, as we wrap up our moment of worship, we want to invoke the name of Jesus against the strongholds of the enemy. You said that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty, the pulling down of strongholds. So Lord, I pray for members of my family, my friends, those that I know are in the throes of an addiction that won't let go of them. Your power is greater. God, I pray that the name of Jesus, I pray in the name of Jesus, that there comes a circumstance in their life where that chain is broken, those shackles are broken. And Lord, that they hear the voice of Jesus Christ speaking to them, be set free. Lord, those who have been consumed by bitterness and anger, that, that an enemy, that the scripture talks about that the enemy gets a foothold, and that foothold becomes a stronghold. Lord, I, I come against that and I pray that their heart would be melted by the love of God, the grace of God, and that they'd be set free from that darkness, be able to again to walk in the freedom and the newness of life. Lord, I pray for those who are walking in the darkness and feel like I don't need Jesus. Oh, Father, you said to pray that the Lord would send laborers into the field because the harvest is ripe. Lord, we pray for the salvation of souls our family friend and friends. God, those around us, Lord, we pray for their salvation, that the darkness and the blindness that they are walking in would be lifted and they would see you as to who you are. Salvation would come to their house. I think about strongholds. I think about our nation today and every one of the, what would we call the pillars of life in terms of our government, education, our economics and entertainment and all of those things the enemy has risen and taken hold of those and made a stronghold out of them. Lord, we pray that those strongholds will be brought down as you anoint men and women with, with the gospel of Jesus Christ and people are being born again and there's a, a return to holiness, a return to righteousness, a return to a biblical point of view. God, that you tear down those strongholds and that there be a great awakening that would come across the United States of America and we would return to the motto that this country is founded on in God we trust. Oh God, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. Every person, the sound of my voice, I pray that they walk in the freedom, in the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. And everyone who agrees with that said, amen. 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 Before you go, I got one more thing we want to do. Brenton, if you'd come down out of the balcony. Brenton leaves us today to begin his trek towards Florida for the training at YWAM. We prayed over him at the picnic last Saturday, but just in case it didn't take. <laughs> I want to pray over him again if you come and stand in front of me so I look like I'm tall. <laughs> Instead of being dwarfed, I'm still dwarfed. Brenton has grown up in this church. and uh, At times I think he's run from the church. He won't, I won't make him say that, but um, God put a call in his heart to serve him in, in some kind of vocational ministry. At this point in time, he's going to go be trained to be a, a photographer in the mission field. We'll see where that goes from there. 
but uh, I just wanted you to reach your hands towards him as we pray for him one more time today. Father, we are so thankful, so thankful for this life, this young man. So we've watched him grow up and uh, to begin to blossom in these last few months as he's answering the call that you've placed upon him, the passion that you put in his heart to serve you and to, to give his life, whatever, whatever it is you have for him in the future. And Lord, we know that that will be revealed step by step. You just ask us to take the first step. And it appears that you've opened the door that this is the first step to go to YWAM, to be trained uh, to ways of evangelism, to be trained in the ways of discipleship, to, to use the skills that he already has, to develop them to another level. God, we just pray for your anointing to rest upon him. Lord, as he digs into you, as he waits upon you, that he hears clearly on an ongoing basis your voice saying, this is the way, walk in it, turn to the right, turn to the left. And give him the courage. Give him the courage to take those turns when you bring them to his heart. Because I'm sure, Lord, you'll take him someplace out of his comfort zone from time to time where he has to depend on you. And help him to understand that he can trust you completely. You are light and in you is no darkness at all. Lord, I pray that there would be fruit, that he would see fruit from his ministry as you develop him and as he matures in his faith and matures in the ministry. Thank you, Father. We pray your protecting hand upon him as he travels across this country. Provide for him each point of the way, the things that he will need when he gets there. And we're so thankful for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to miss you because he's running the soundboard for the past several months, every service. And so um, he's going to leave a hole. But we're looking forward to the day that he comes back with a great report. In the foyer, the raffle takes place today for those who bought raffle tickets for the quilt. Is that what it is? Yes. Whatever it is. And so he'll be doing that out in the foyer immediately. Love you, man. God bless you. Okay. Don't forget to read the bulletin, okay? There's some important announcements. Read the bulletin.